0: Hey, everyone. You clicked on the right button. You're back with me, Mitchell Hora. I'm a farmer from Iowa, joined by a special guest today.
1: And I'm Zach Johnson. Special is correct, Mitchell. I farm in Minnesota, and this is Fieldwork, a podcast by farmers for farmers.
0: We want to give a big thank you to the Walton Family Foundation for supporting us this season Uh, financially. And ironically, Zach, we're going to talk about Ag finances here today, because I guess that's an important thing when you're running a business. Got to be able to have a little bit of money to flow around.
1: I would say that's probably an important thing if you want to be in business next year and the year after.
0: Well, we're going to talk with uh, a couple key guests here today that are getting creative with how ag financing really works, um, but especially the financing around sustainable agriculture. You know, it's a little bit different than just going into your bank. To say, hey, I need to buy seed and chemical and equipment. Um, But talking with them about sustainable ag can be a little bit of a different conversation.
1: Yeah, it'll be interesting to hear what they have to say about incentives when it comes to transferring to regenerative farming or what some of their farmers are doing right now when it comes to things like that and what kind of options are out there as far as incentives. Um, Also, some of the bureaucracy that goes along kind of behind the scenes and what they have to say about that, what might be coming down the pipeline.
0: Well, let's uh, talk with a couple key guests here. First, we're going to have Sammy Telliton. She went to Stanford Graduate School of Business, which sounds super fancy. And uh, she wanted to become an entrepreneur. And that's where she met her business partner, who's from a farming background. And uh, last year, they started a startup called Farmraise.
1: All right. So tell us what is Farmraise and what do you do?
2: FarmRaise is a one-stop shop for farm funding. It's the easiest way for farmers to get grants and loans. And what we do is we simplify the process of figuring out what the heck you're eligible for in terms of grants and loans. And we make it really easy for you to manage the deadlines and apply to programs on time. Our goal is to unlock funding for producers to make sure that you can actually invest in your farm and spend more time working on the farm, um, making a livelihood that supports you and your family.
1: So farm raise helps the, the farmers figure out exactly what they can apply for and how to do it. Is that right?
2: Exactly. Yeah, we run eligibility across a number of factors and then match farmers with grants and loans that meet their goals and also their eligibility as a producer so where the producer is located how much income they're producing um, and then a couple unique eligibility requirements to specific programs
0: you know something that that strikes me here you know is okay there's plenty of these different programs that are out there for farmers lots of different conservation initiatives we'll see what's going to happen here um, in the, the biden administration there's supposed to be some changes to some of these initiatives but one of the biggest pains is going through all the paperwork and stuff. And like Sammy, is that kind of what you guys are, are looking at helping with is not have to do so much paperwork.
2: Yes, exactly. Paperwork is the biggest headache. Um, And I can speak to this from experience because it's been um, several months of operation at farmers. We started in March of 2020 and we started by tackling the application to equip, the Environmental Quality Incentives Program and the Conservation Stewardship Program, two excellent programs from the Natural Resource Conservation Service that most farmers are eligible for and should apply for um, that also support soil health. But to get to those programs, especially if you're not familiar with them, you have to navigate a couple gnarly forms, one around highly erodible lands and wetland, an income certification form, and then the application to the program itself. Um, And we've interviewed hundreds of farmers before we built FarmRaise, and so many of them told us how much of a headache it is to navigate the paperwork. And as amazing as they are, USDA Service Center representatives don't always have the time to patiently sit and work through some of that paperwork with you, and so you end up having to rely on extension offices or yourself or Google to get through this. Um, And so we've combined all the paperwork for these programs into one application module. You can go through online, simple and submit, and then we file it all for you.
0: Yeah. Zach and I are millennials and we don't want this to be uh, more challenging than, you know, easiest way forward is uh, definitely the best. So how do we actually proceed? So as farmers, who are interested in going about you know, applying for some of these programs and working with FarmRays, how does that work? What's the actual onboarding and step-by-step process?
2: Great question, Mitchell. So we have two tiers of service. The first one is a premium tier. Um, to get involved with premium, you just go to our website, farmraise.com, you click sign up, and you select what you want to pay. So this is... Um, Every time I tell a farmer about this, they, they ask why we chose to do it this way. We, we have a pay what you want model. So you can choose to pay $10, $20, or $30 a month to opt into premium. That helps you gain access to unlimited office hours with our staff, your own personal advisor at FarmRaise, and we will match you to all funding programs you're eligible for, state, local level programs, federal programs and we'll even provide loan support for you. We then manage all the deadlines for you and all the paperwork so that you're getting your paperwork in the door on time. And we charge a success fee on grants and loans that we unlock for for you. Um, And then if you want us to write a narrative-based grant for you, so this is a grant that requires pages of writing, we will also charge an hourly grant writing fee. We chose to go pay what you want at the base level of paying into the membership because we wanted this service to be accessible to farmers at any stage. We didn't want to keep anyone from using the service by putting out a payment model that was restrictive. And so we chose pay what you want to make this more accessible. There's also a free tier. So if you aren't quite ready for premium, you kind of just want to explore some initial options. You can set up a free account within our digital platform and we will match you with federal grants and loan programs that you're eligible for after you take a two-minute quiz to give us some basic info. And then you can actually go into the app and apply for eQuip, which we've talked about, the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, and CSP, the Conservation Stewardship Program, through our streamlined application tool.
1: So who, who do you find is coming to you for help with this? What's, who's your most common customer? What does that look like?
2: We've seen our average farmer is on the small to medium size, Um, and they're coming from Virginia, Iowa, and Minnesota. That's our top three states where producers are are coming to us from. But we've actually had most states represented in our early user base. Um, We kind of have three tranches of customers too. So those that are brand new to farming, they have an idea and they need the capital to get started. They're probably about a quarter of our base. And they're, <laughs> we've actually seen in that tranche a lot of folks interested in container agriculture. Um, so like vertical farming or hydroponics that um, wanna get started on a relatively small scale and in an urban area. So that's been interesting to see come in. And it makes sense. They have to put out a lot for the infrastructure for container farms. So they're looking for help navigating that funding. We have another tranche and this is our biggest one. That's probably half of our base. And this is a group of farmers that are within their first few years of operating. So they're somewhat established, but they're at a transition point and they really need to expand in some way, diversify production or expand the size of the farm. And they're looking for advice on the best way to access funding to do that. And then there's a a last tranche of folks that are established farmers that are looking to innovate on the farm or. To be in a position in a couple years to make some significant capital investments. Um, the ca- classic example of this is a soil health-oriented row crop grower in the Midwest that wants to try cover cropping and is also wanting to be in a position to buy more land in a year or two and wants help gearing up for that.
0: So, Sammy, what's the goal here? You know, what's the vision of of Farm Raise overall, and what's your goal as you are? Uh, you know, so you're still pretty early in this. And having some good initial success, but but what's it look like as you guys continue to scale?
2: Our vision for the company is vital farming communities. And so we set out on this quest a year and some change ago to help farmers unlock funding and address the acute need of liquidity so getting capital in the door today. And what we've found is there's just larger challenge of profitability. Um, This, Interest that the farmers we've talked with have in being on the farm full-time and not having to worry about an off-farm job. And this desire by farmers to be able to jump at opportunities to improve their business, whether that's buying new land or taking on a new innovation. And so as we think about what vital farming communities really are, they are profitable. They're able to be economically viable, um, they're also ecologically resilient, and they're equitable. So that's how we're orienting ourselves. It's a vision that is near and dear to our hearts and is something that um, we constantly use to inform the direction we go.
0: Sounds like quite the vision. Zach and my vision is just to have the you know top podcast and have a helicopter. I mean, keep it simple. <laughs> <laughs> That's But right. Do you
2: use your helicopter for uh aerial seating
0: Mitch? no no going to the beach only. no <laughs> <Nice>. aerial seating <laughs> well if we need a like a you know maybe we can get a loan through sammy for that like beach sammy how do you guys handle loan <laughs> applications for beach i mean it's not even like beachfront property it's just like the whole beach like we just want the whole the whole beach the island Does that work
1: and the mineral rights, we want to maintain those. Well, definitely, definitely need the mineral rights.
2: You know, we've never been approached for a project like this before. I'm going to have to really talk with the team and, and get back to you on uh, funding options. We might actually have to go to some wealthy investors to fund this endeavor.
0: Uh, We've already got it uh, trademarked, uh, Beach Rays. It's already got it trademarked, so you're going to have to go through me on that one. But, you know, I'll I'll license the idea to you if you want to.
2: That's so generous of you.
0: Zach and I.
1: I'm thinking, though, we're going to have to grow some sort of crop on this beach.
0: Well, Hmm. I mean, Zach, you were just at the beach. What kind of crops were were they growing out there? Coconuts. Well... I suppose. I don't know how lucrative <laughs> that is.
1: Oh, that doesn't <laughs> have to be lucrative, life. Mitchell. It's farming.
0: Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. And it's farming on the beach. We already, we already, you know, got the beach, and helicopter. And when we need, we can just leave.
2: Oprah owns a farm in Hawaii. Maybe you could ask her.
0: Yeah, okay. we'll give her a well, call next. We can call her. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll
1: put that her. on my list. You call Oprah. <laughs> Okay, got it. Yeah. I got it.
0: You just you didn't just text her. Was, <laughs> I guess you just DM on Instagram, don't you? Zach? Yeah.
1: Well, Oprah is so slow at texting back that I find it better to call her. Yeah, that's
0: probably true. Yep. Yeah, that's a good point.
1: Sammy, are there are there any funds out there that you guys know about that uh, you find to be like a secret stash that you can tell us about here? Like, o- open that floodgate here and and let everybody listening know where's the secret stash that farmers need to know about. <laughs>
2: Yes. Uh, well, I wish that there was some like arbitrage here that, you know, there's like the secret gold mine for farmers that I could share and and open up the floodgates. But um I'll in you know, in the absence of that for now, I'll share with you some of the funds that are emerging that we're really excited about. So, there's a fund called Replant Capital. It's a new fund that's structured as a debt Um, a debt fund for farmers, they are looking to help farmers get loans if soil health practices and regenerative agriculture practices are being implemented on the farm. And the reason why this is so cool and novel is that today it's actually pretty difficult to access traditional agricultural debt capital to finance soil health um, endeavors. So you can't really get a, um, you know, a cover crop loan from your lender today. It's difficult for those lenders to underwrite that. So replant is one that really excites us because they're doing something new They're um And they're, you know, paving a way towards the future. There's also a couple funds that we are looking at um, and directing farmers to that use uh, non-traditional forms of investment. So there's a fund, a firm called Steward, which helps farmers source operating capital um, up to, I think, $150,000 to um, invest in the farm and, and to get things going. They are using um, more of a crowdfunding model to do that. So it's it's structured as a loan, but it's coming from a variety of individuals rather than from an institution. And then there's also a fund called Harvest Returns that some of the farmers we've worked with have also worked with. That is using um, equity investment to fund different aspects of a farmer's operation. Um, and so those are things we're we're looking at. One of the really fun things about working at FarmRaise is that we have prospective funders coming to us to ask for our help through workshops and things like that and designing the best funding mechanisms for farmers. And that's our opportunity to really be the voice of our farmers and advocate for what they need and help that fund develop the best mechanism to really meet that need in the field. Um, so I-, I love when we get the chance to do that and I'm excited to see that coming um, more so in the future as well.
0: Yeah, so Sammy, we. Uh... Neglected to tell you earlier that we're talking with Robin here yet this evening from Replant Capital. Oh, that's
2: awesome. And
0: uh, yeah, so we're going to dig directly into that. And uh, this is just kind of a side note here, you know, as we're recording this. But Zach, what do you think in terms of, you know, just the awareness of farmers not even really knowing that there's options out there that they could utilize and find some creative ways to get more funding coming to the operation?
1: Yeah, we've had shows on it, you know, in the past, last season, and and we've talked about that, where it is difficult. There are options out there. And I I think um, finding what is right for your operation and what your goals are and what you're trying to do is really the difficult part. And then deciding if it's worth, you know, mudding through the waters, so to speak, and trying to figure out if if it's worth it or not. Because by the time you mud through those waters, sometimes you may spend a lot of time on it and find out that it really wasn't worth your time. So Ah, uh, this this farm raise idea really interests me here. Um, how, how do you know, Sammy, how, how do you know if somebody should apply for a grant or a loan and and what type it is? I, I assume there must be some sort of a like a filtering process to figure it all out.
2: Yes, so that's a great question. That's actually how we've designed our eligibility quiz. So this is a two minute quiz you can take you get asked about 13 questions about your operation today and about your goals. And using that information, we can then match you to these different grants and loan programs. Um, and Zach, what it really comes down to is where, you know, where are you at today on the farm? Are you at a place where you have some existing infrastructure to work with, some existing capital that you've invested, or are you kind of Earlier than that. So that's a dividing place. And then the second area is what are you looking to fund? So, are you looking for um, an ownership or loan or like a mortgage opportunity? Are you looking for anything related to infrastructure or capital improvements? So, buying equipment, investing in the land. Are you looking for operating coverage or are you trying to innovate? Are you trying to do something? completely new, something related to soil health or diversifying your product through a value-added endeavor. And from there we can understand, okay, this person is a good fit for grants or this person is a good fit for loans. And generally I think where we see the most success for grants is when someone is looking to try something new that adds value to the operation or um, is related to the environment or conservation. There are grants for soil health practices, for renewable energy production, and for value added production or getting to a new market. But there are less grants available for infrastructural investment um, or even for purchasing equipment. And a lot of grant programs actually will have a restriction on the amount of equipment you can
0: actually buy. So, Sammy, let's talk on the political side of what's to come here in 2021, in the next couple of years, that the Biden administration has you know, said, I saw an article, I think even just this morning about um, that they're going to be utilizing more, you know, more focus on CRP, Conservation Reserve Program, um, but also on CSP, the Conservation Stewardship Program that you have talked about. Give us the insider scoop. What's going to happen on the political components here and some of that government um, government funding and, and their focus specifically around these programs?
2: Yeah, this is an exciting time for, um, for agriculture, for grants, for cost share programs. And the reason is that um, the new administration is prioritizing climate change as one of their key areas. And Um, they see agriculture and nature-based solutions as part of the, um, part of the, you know, winning ticket here in order to get that, that priority pushed forward. So they're looking into ways to utilize existing programs, like you mentioned, Mitchell, the CRP and CSP programs to help incentivize the adoption of climate-smart agriculture practices. Um, there's also been talk, and in the climate twenty one transition memo, it was highlighted, um, there's been talk of starting a carbon bank through the Commodity Credit Corporation that would actually finance land management practices that sequester carbon, creating um, maybe you know a boon to a lot of these carbon markets that are cropping up for farmers to access, where you're you're guaranteeing a buyer kind of at the end of it with with this carbon bank. Um, that's something I'm watching and I'm interested to hear more about. I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts on that as you think about that. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is just to expect investments from USDA in the programs that support rural green energy and smart grid development as well. So looking at rural development offices and seeing how they invest in the REAP, program, Renewable Energy for America um, program, and then uh, any other advancements with clean energy in rural areas.
0: Yeah. And Sammy, to your point on whether it be the Carbon Board or the Growing Climate Solutions Act or some of these other things that are being pushed through D.C. um, at the recording of this, to me, what I think is going to be interesting is, yeah, there's, there's a lot of focus from like the CSP side on the government and taxpayer funded programs. And then on the carbon side of things, where it's for the most part, it's going to be private industry funded. Now there is some political drivers and and uh, different countries, especially different countries, and then like in California and stuff, they do have direct tax driven programs around carbon credits. But my concerns are, I see some of these as saying you either do, you know, a CSP or EQUIP or a cost funding, or you do a carbon funding. And to me, I think there's a lot of opportunity for both of them to play together, but what have you seen from that standpoint and, and what are your reactions, I guess, to my thoughts around um, how those programs are going to overlap and be able to play nice together?
2: <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more with you that they can definitely play nice together. And um, we anticipate that that's the way it's going to go. We've been looking into this and trying to take a pulse on it. Um, and what we're seeing is that there's really no reason that stacking like an EQIP grant that gets you an EQIP cost share agreement that gets you access to um, financing to help you plant cover crops. You know, there's no reason that couldn't be used in conjunction with you then selling the carbon to a buyer. And the reason is that the USDA is not buying the carbon credits by giving you EQIP financial assistance to implement the practice. and so we see those as being really value additive. It's a great question that you ask, and it's one that we should definitely keep watch for. But we don't anticipate there being a significant challenge with that moving forward. I think the question now is, Mitchell and Zach, yeah, what what have you both seen in terms of uptake or access of farmers in your areas to these programs we've been talking about
0: yeah, yeah. So, like in my area, um, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a hotbed for soil health and for these practices. As we as we've talked about a lot on here, and there's actually quite a few of the farmers that that I work with here in Washington County that are in um, different CSP contracts. Um, I don't know that there would be, you know, there's nowhere close to a you know significant number, you know, getting close to majorities or nothing like that. But but it's fairly common that. Um, that these farmers are enrolled in some of these CSP contracts. Now the thing with the CSP contract too is it's typically like a five-year commitment. And Sammy, definitely correct me if I'm wrong, but you know it's a multi-year type deal. There's multiple different things that you're agreeing to, so it's kind of a stacked program. Um, and yeah, there's been multiple farmers that have taken advantage of it here in this area, um, and it's it's a little different than like our normal local um Iowa cost share program for cover crop. It's a, you know, so farmers are able to really stack, I think, the local um state programs, the local watershed programs, and the federal programs. Mm-hmm.
2: That's awesome. Yeah, I Iowa is a pretty awesome state for funding for like soil health things, for example, because you have a revolving loan fund at the state level. So if you want to participate in the state-level cost share, or say like EQIP or CSP, you can, but you don't have the capital to pay some of the cost upfront to later get reimbursed. You can apply in tandem to the revolving loan fund at the state level, um, which is about $10 million total available, and get that get that upfront cash so that you can then use your cost share dollars to help repay down the line. I've not seen infrastructure like that in any other state yet. So it's really exciting.
0: Why do you yeah, think I was that Zach, Zach? I was just awesome. Well, you know, we all have our own
1: opinions, Mitchell.
0: <laughs> I, 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 we won't get into that.
1: <laughs> Sammy, why do you think uh, you, you had mentioned what Iowa has going on and they were one of the top three that you listed earlier, but so adding on to that, why do you think Virginia and Minnesota would be, States that are also in, in those top three there?
2: It's a great question that we are investigating because we don't fully know the answer. Um, what I can say is that we've been reaching farmers through Facebook and also through reaching out to local extension offices, um, and local, you know, Farmer organizations to get the word out. And maybe by using those channels, we've, we've naturally, you know, kind of sourced from those states. Um, you know, Jace is from Virginia. So I wonder if some of our outreach efforts there have been, um, more strong because she's from Virginia. On, on my part, I love Iowa and Minnesota. I've lived in Minneapolis for a few months and, I um, definitely think that they're prime regions to get involved with farmers in terms of farm raise. And so it's, those are definitely areas we've talked about doubling down on in the, in the future. In terms of other things to share, um, Mitchell, this is sort of a, a detour, but I just wanted to say that on CSP, my understanding is that it's the next step from Equip to where you can if you have existing conservation practices like cover crops or no-till implemented, you can get CSP funding to either maintain or improve those practices. And so I would actually think that you're a great candidate for that program. I know that there are restrictions around um, the way you implement some of those practices, and that might be something that um, isn't right for you, but I would... I would maybe suggest revisiting that in the future because I do think that you're a great candidate for it, given all the work that you're doing on the farm. I think
0: I think Farm Ray should help me to revisit it. I was going to (laughs) say,
2: I would love that.
0: (laughs) Can Mitchell log in on the free tier
1: side of things and take that 13 question eligibility quiz?
2: He can, yes, indeed, and he can go in and apply for CSP after that.
0: There you go, Mitchell. Zach, you probably already did it during this interview since you're an overachiever.
1: I have the window open, but I didn't want the uh, keys to make the clickety-clack sound because I
0: was afraid Annie would chew me out. Sammy, that was great. Yep. Thank you, Sammy.
2: Well, thank you all so much.
0: Yeah, I think it's huge and really you know, rooting for Farm Raise and their ability to help farmers and help to overcome some of the burden of doing paperwork and be able to access new areas of financing that maybe a farmer didn't have access to before.
1: If you want to learn more about FarmRaise, which is all one word, by the way, just Google it or go to farmraise.org. We'll be right back with our next guest after a short
0: break. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. We want to introduce you now to Robin O'Brien. She is a co-founder of another startup called Replant Capital. Her background is working with some of the big food companies in the country.
1: Replant is a venture capital fund that wants to help finance a transition from conventional agriculture to regenerative and organic. Robin is going to tell us more about that, but just so you know, you might hear her four kids coming and going in the background.
0: Not that you would know anything about having kids run around the house while we're recording fieldwork, though, would you, Zach?
1: Oh, absolutely not. It's always very simple to get them to you know sit down quietly in another room and really just tend to themselves. <laughs> well, that's good.
0: Okay, now let's listen in to our interview with Robin O'Brien. No, Robin, we were just talking with Sammy from Farm Race. I oh, we I
3: love on. her. I love yeah. her.
0: Sammy is the best. Yeah, yeah so we were just talking They're with an her. amazing
3: team. And I asked Sammy, I was like, who is like you, you know, that is also out there circulating? And thankfully, I know you mm-hmm. guys are the same. I mean, the talent and the interest that's coming into this industry is absolutely incredible i think that's what makes it so much fun you know it's like such a massive heavy lift of getting this thing going but because of the people in it it's so much fun
0: yeah zach and i were looking at all these different ways that we can contribute you know to sustainable agriculture and all these you know big big dreams and we uh we went for podcasting because we uh we want a helicopter so that's why we're here yeah.
1: <laughs> much much larger goals like helicopters and private beaches. Yeah. <laughs> the things that, you know, matter to the world.
0: Yeah.
3: Uh, but you know what? Like, you know, imagine if farmers had the helicopter and the private beach. Everybody would be like, "I want to be a farmer," you know? And I think that's that's actually the opportunity is to to elevate the career and, you know, compensate it. I think this was, should probably be our podcast, you know, really to to put it forward for the important work that it, that it represents and the stewardship that it represents for a society and to compensate accordingly. You know, I gave a keynote in New Zealand a couple like a year and a half ago and the farmers there were treated like CEOs of multinational operations. They were elevated and they were held up and it was remarkable to see. And it just made me so sad because we've taken the exact opposite approach here. And, um, and that's the opportunity is to, cut,
0: is to just completely flip the script. I, I totally agree. And I've said that before, but how do we approach it? How do we change that narrative that, you know, I think a lot of people look at, at uh, that farmer as, you know, old McDonald farmer out there, but really they are that CEO. How do we change that narrative?
3: You know, I think it starts with an economic equation. And so, you know, right now, as you guys know, you know, the economic equation for farmers isn't working. The financial resiliency isn't there. And we have, you know, record debt levels on top of that. There's suicides. There's an opioid epidemic. I mean, it's really, it's an industry in crisis. And so when you look at that, you know, most crises are are related to the economics of an industry. So let's start there. You know, it's not something that we're going to be able to do overnight because it has taken us decades and generations to build this model that is so extractive and so degenerative. So to try to flip that overnight is not a realistic task. You know, I would hope that within a generation or by the time I'm a grandmother that we can now look back and say, this is what we were able to do. We were able to reposition the career of farmer in our society to the level of recognition that it so rightfully deserves. You know, it's for the stewardship of the soil. It's for for the governance of these assets like soil and air and water and the fact that none of us can go a single day without any of those things. And so to really kind of flip the script, we aren't attracting enough young people into farming. And, And it's because, you know, it's just it's not a strong economic argument. You know, if you want to start a family and have kids and send them to college, you know, you're looking at a career and saying, is this going to afford me that opportunity? So how do we make farming that career?
1: I love the way you put that and the way you talk about the industry as a whole and, and what we're looking at towards the future here. And there's a lot to dig into when it comes to you know, where we are right now, how we got here and where we go. But let's talk first about your new company, Replant Capital, and what you guys are doing to to work towards some of that.
3: I will often say you cannot fix a broken food system or a broken farming system with a broken financial system. The reason we have such extractive systems in place in food and farming is because we have really extractive financial systems. You know, thankfully for the three co-founders, Dave Haynes and Don Schaefer and myself, you know, we really landed on there is no food security unless there's financial security and financial resiliency for our farmers.
0: So what specifically, though, is replant going to do in that? Like, how do you guys or what's your role going to be, I guess, in ensuring that financial resiliency for that farmer?
3: What would it look like if capital came in with a regenerative mindset instead of an extractive one? And that was really where we started. And so then we said, you know, what does it look like if capital is regenerative? And so if we were to work with farmers who are interested in transitioning their farmland, To think about the capital instead of tying it to these to these metrics at these banks to tie it to things like soil health so let's tie the cost of capital to soil organic matter or nutrient density or water infiltration or water conservation and the stronger those metrics are on farm the lower the cost of capital what i love about that is that the farmer who is farming regeneratively is being compensated for this work that he's already doing, but it's work beyond what he sells that crop for. It's for the stewardship, it's for the service, this greater service to compensate, you know, through these cost savings. And what we've seen is that farmers that transition that farmland to regenerative, you know, as they transition, they're moving away from that chemical input model. And as they move away from the chemical input model, that means they're also moving away from the debt levels that are required to finance the chemicals. and so that chemical treadmill that a lot of the farmers are on is accompanied by the very parallel debt treadmill and it's like two you know parts of that railway track taking them straight into that mess. So again it's stepping away from this one size fits all mindset of of ag and one one size fits all mindset of financing and saying let's regionalize this so you have the lower cost of capital then you have the technical assistance provider. And then importantly, we bring in these multinational food companies as a guaranteed buyer. And that's born out of years of work that I have been doing, you know, with these companies. Um, the relationships have, it's been fascinating the last 15 years to see how that has changed for them to have gone from a very defensive position of we're not changing anything, you know, don't tell us what to do, to an understanding that the 21st century consumer is looking for products that are free from certain things. As a result, these multinational food companies are saying, you know what? We don't have the supply chain to actually meet the needs of the 21st century consumer. Rather than transition American farmers and support them in this transition and move them into this financial opportunity with the organic organic premium and everything else, the food companies initially just said, oh, we're going to import it. And, you know, that was crushing to me because I thought, you know, we are. We are importing this opportunity that should be afforded to American growers.
0: So Robin, there was about four podcasts worth of stuff there that, that <laughs> we're going to have to dig into. Sorry.
1: I, I, but, would, I would agree. I'm glad <laughs> you mentioned that because I was trying to figure out which path to go down.
0: Well, so, but I'm going to start way back from like continuing to baby step here because I think the initial piece here is the root of this. And, and what I, my observation in ag is that a lot of the core problem here is that ag today is driven by bushels and debt. Meaning I got to continue to be, make cash flow to continue uh-huh. to pay down that operating loan and because uh-huh. it's all debt driven and the only way to do that today and ensure cash flow is bushels. Uh-huh. And so that's the key driver, but for you guys, how does your capital actually work? Is it still like debt? Is it still a different operating loan or like how how do you guys specifically like disrupt that component of this equation?
3: So that's a great question. So we work with these multinational food companies, and as you guys know, some know their farmers really well, and others don't. Um, and it doesn't really matter if they're a conventional company, organic company. Um, there's that same issue across the board. Of unfortunately, a lot of these multinational food companies know their processors like ADM and Cargo, but they don't know their growers. And so, you know, in real time over the last year during the pandemic, uh, we saw a lot of, hey, we need to get to know our farmers. And um, it's great to see that starting. It's insanely overdue. Um, And I think the food companies are now recognizing that, you know, until they knew their farmer, they had no idea how vulnerable their supply chain was. And I think, you know, through COVID, we saw how vulnerable our supply chain is. Um, And so as we work with those multinational companies, they have incredible insight into the, the loans that their farmers are currently in, um, the terms, the length, the type. And it's really working closely on a company by company, farmer by farmer basis, you know, to figure out where where is the pain point and where can we step in and meet meet those needs. One of my co-founders, uh, Don Schaefer, was CEO of RS of Social Finance. And, you know, they were an incredible organization that was able to meet the needs of emerging organizations that, that others, you know, hadn't always serviced. And he felt that the chapter that he didn't get to do there was agriculture and they deployed something like $200 million, you know, in loans. And so he really is the expert on the loan side of the portfolio. Um, He, you know, he he can speak in detail to the way that we will be able to really kind of go in there on an individual basis um, and not do this cookie cutter approach. And again, you know, when you're talking to any other entrepreneur in any other industry, it gets back to the CEO thing. That's what we do. We don't try to shove it down their throat that it's like, hey, take it or leave it. This is what you got. You know, it's what are the needs of your business model this year and how can we service the needs of that model? And now we have senior leadership at all of these multinational food companies that are really excited about the impact that they can make as they really transition their supply chains. Um, The chief sustainability officer at General Mills has brought the CFO into her working group, which never would have happened five years ago.
1: Is this something where you work with farmers of of every shape and size, or is there kind of a specific type of farm or size of farm or a specific farm that you look for to work with?
3: You know, I think the main thing for us is meeting the farmer where they are. So we don't want to we're not trying to convert anybody. You know, we know that there are early adopters. Um, We see that and you know we are contacted by farms of all sizes and you know in real time right now we're trying to figure out what the product offering is to be able to meet so how does
0: how does the farmer work with replant today or is it the farmer that's going directly to replant today saying hey here's what i want to do can you guys help me out or like how do you guys fill your funnel i guess on who you're actually going to work with and supply capital so the
3: first fund is $250 million. It's the inaugural soil fund, and 80% of that is capital going to farmers, so $200 million. And then the other 20% is on the ag tech side of things. So, you know, some of the technologies that farmers are seeing, some of the technologies that the food companies are seeing, for us to be able to sort of do some due diligence on that and then to transition U.S. farmland would require $700 billion. And clearly a $250 million fund is just like a snowflake on that enormity of that issue. But for us to be able to model it and show that there are other ways that we can think about this um, that are much more value aligned uh, with the work that the farmers are doing is what's so important. And what's what's been really interesting for us is to, hear from sort of these more conventional institutions and banks who don't have that kind of knowledge in house. And you guys would know, I mean, there's so many people that just don't know what they don't know.
0: How's that work then as, as you're navigating, okay, how do we work with this grower? Is it somebody from replant sitting down with every single one of the farmers and identifying, you know, what are those capital needs and how are we going to fund it, fund this? Or how does, you know, how does that piece even scale? Or, or is it automated or digitized or what?
3: Yeah. So for us, you know, leveraging the relationships with these multinational food companies for them to say, look, here, here are our top ten growers who are already, you know, moving towards regenerative organic agriculture. So we're not having to sell anybody on it. We're not convincing them on it. And here are their capital needs. And so then we can go into those top 10, it's just 10 farmers. I mean, that's not an enormous amount of due diligence and and really try to, you know, figure out who wants to work with us, you know, where those opportunities are. Um, and the supply chains inside all of these companies, like they, they all have those lists. So um, finding the farmers is is actually incredibly easy um, because there's such a clear need um, in the farming community. And I think when you look at the cost savings that are generated as you transition to regenerative and get off of that chemical treadmill. Um, you know, that that transition to regenerative is such a cost savings one. And then if a farmer wants to further transition on to organic, then they are also not only to achieve the cost savings, but then they're also able to accomplish the, um, the organic premium and capture that upside. But, you know, I truly believe that that a farmer witnessing another farmer make this transition and seeing the economic impact that happens as that farmer makes that transition you know there's there's no amount of marketing or talking or anything else that that speaks more than that
1: i would agree with that completely it, it, it's a lot more valuable to watch the neighbor go through something like you're talking about here with a transition like that and watch somebody next door have success with it you know that, that there's a value on that that you can't get from anywhere else as a farmer because it's it's, it's the nature of the beast it's what our occupation is there's a lot of Risk there year after year, and we only get that reward once per year. So being able to make sure that we can actually see somebody that we know and can talk to who uses, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe plants the same stuff we do in the same geography, the same soil, and see them have success with it. You know, they're just you—you you can't place a value on that. Um, Robin, you mentioned that finding farmers is not very difficult for you guys. How do you decide who to fund with this? If you, if you can find farmers easily. You know, how do you go about deciding who you're involved with? You
3: know, I think the due diligence is done by the companies themselves is a huge part of that. And then, you know, on the farm and, you know, we're not naive, like they're going to be farmers that are going to want to work with us. And they're going to be farmers who are going to say, you know what, I've talked to the same guy. I could pick up my phone right now and call him. He's been my guy for 30 years and they don't want to talk to us. And um, that's fine. You know, we're not trying to sell someone that's unsellable. Um, my response to to that statement is usually, well, that that's the guy that has been really happy keeping you in debt for 30 years. And we don't we don't want to see that. You know, we want to see a turn towards profitability. And again, I think for so many decades now, um, the focus has been on yield. and the messaging and marketing to the farm to the farming community has been yield. And farmers are waking up to the fact that they suffered profitability for yield. So, what does it look like if a farmer's
0: compass is pointed towards profitability? But in this situation, then the farmer is saying, "Okay, I need to, you know, transition my farm to organic, or adopt regenerative systems, or, you know, expand or get, you know, get equipment or land or whatever." And then they're going to you guys. And then what's the pay back and then what's the commitment and stuff that the grower is doing because right now interest rates rates at the bank are really low if they're going to go and buy farm ground or equipment or whatever but how come they choose your capital and uh, what are those other requirements because I assume it's more than just we need a you know percent interest you know a certain percentage interest yeah so we bring in so we bring in
3: yeah so we bring in these technical assistance partners and there's a Company called Eco Practice is a great example. I know you guys know them, and it's really you know figuring out. And again, it's 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 not one size fits all. So I can't say oh it's hey it's this percent because that's the conditioning that we're all used to, and that's what we're challenging is that one size fits all approach. So it's farm by farm um, the determination and bringing in the technical assistance partner like Eco Practices that can say okay on this farm. You know, the loan is going to be tied to soil organic matter and water infiltration or, you know, whatever whatever it might be, you know, and it's it's going to depend on the crop and it's going to depend on the the food company. We have some of our um, some of the food companies, some of the partners pretty much are telling their farmers that they want them to work with replant because they're so tired of being told what to do by these extractive banks and the banks demand quarterly earnings returns and you can't give that as you're transitioning on a 3 year on a 3 year project and so you know we sat down and said what does it look like to have a capital partner that can actually provide that transition financing and that was the unique role that we can play as replant is to come in as that transition finance partner and help them transition their supply chains.
0: But so Robin, why don't the companies finance it um, themselves and choose some of those growers and they and the company work with them? You know, Why not utilize some of their capital or, or their demand coming from the consumer? And uh, and then where does you guys' capital come from as a outside source?
3: Yeah, those are great questions. So the companies don't have that capital internally to finance the transition. Um, you know, the food industry, you guys know, I mean, the margins are just razor thin. And General Mills, for example, when they announced a couple of years ago that they wanted to convert a million acres to regenerative agriculture, they were hoping to get 25 farmers to sign up in the first three years. And they got 180 farmers signed up in the first 24 hours. And they will tell you that they thought they were going to be able to top tap some of the money that they had in their foundation, but they quickly realized that it just wasn't enough. And I think there's a lot of humility in that, you know, of, of saying this is actually more complicated than we thought and, you know as a company they knew adm and cargo they didn't know their farmers and so they really have done an amazing job of sort of leaning into that humility and saying okay where can we get to know our farmers and what are the needs and then where do we find these capital partners that can help us transition
0: so but as you're looking at transitioning like how do you guys define a couple of these things like how are you defining yeah i want to transition to regenerative yeah, I want to transition to organic or I want to transition to sustainable. Like, how do you define some of those things?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, regenerative, I think, depending on who you ask, depending on the crop type, you're going to get a different answer on what is regenerative. Soil health is a North Star for us. And so to think about regenerative practices towards better soil health, um, you know, to be able to, have higher nutrient density water infiltration water conservation those metrics um and so you know for us it's really sitting down with those growers and saying you know zach you know as we write the terms of this loan um do you want you know is it water conservation is it soil nutrient density you know what is it what are these metrics that we want to capture on your farm um, that you can work towards and deliver towards, and then we bring in that third-party verifier because it holds everybody accountable. And some people were like, "Well, why don't you, you know, have that third-party verification in-house as part of replant?" We felt that was a conflict of interest, and it's like we want we want that third-party verification to hold us accountable, and we want the verifier to hold the farmer accountable.
1: Do you find? competition in, in certain things, jumping back to, you know, deciding what is regenerative or what is organic and and how do you come up with the labels for these things? Do you find competition when it comes to, you know, if somebody wants to be regenerative or if they want to be organic and how can they try to achieve both? Because it's not always easy to do that. So how do you work with the guys to try to decide what is it that they want to be and how do they get there?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's a very personal decision and, and we're not, we're not going to tell anyone what to do. I mean, it's such an intimate decision for a farm family. And, you know, I'm from Texas and we've had farmers in Texas say, you know, if I start talking about organic, my kid's not going to make the, the football team, you know? And it's like, no one wants to do that to a family. So, to really listen to what the needs are and what they want to accomplish. What we have seen is that if a farmer transitions to regenerative, the cost savings, you know, are measurable in that first year. And sometimes it's fine just to stay there and sit there, um, you know, employing these practices that we've talked about. And then in some cases, after a few years of farming regeneratively, they're like, okay, I'm ready to make the next step to organic and capture that premium there's legislation that's pending in New Zealand and it's one of two developed countries that doesn't actually have organic legislation. And my recommendation to them was make sure you incorporate regenerative in that definition so that you don't end up, you know, with this tension, which is where we are now today, um, where, you know, the consumer thinks organic incorporates these values around soil health. And that actually isn't part of the legal definition of organic. So, um, for us, it's really, you know, that North star is soil health and water conservation, water infiltration and nutrient density.
0: Well, Zach, what do you think? This has been a heck of a uh, conversation and, and Robin, and I, you know, commend you guys for the stuff that, you know, the work that replant is doing. I think there is a really specific spot there and in, in a role that you guys are feeling that is really needed. And, um, but just good, I think, for farmers to realize there's lots of new creative things that are coming about. And Zach, I mean, a lot of our listeners um, might have more options than what they really thought.
1: Yep, that's really interesting to hear from you, Robin. I, I mean, thank you for joining us today for this. You, you can hear, you can hear the passion in your voice when you talk about what it is you're doing. It's it's very commendable. So just thank you for joining us for the conversation. It was really great.
3: Okay, great. Thanks, you guys.
1: Thanks Robin. Thanks, Robin.
3: Bye.
0: Now, uh, it sounds like it's time for a listener voicemail, Zach. Let's see what we got here today.
4: Hey, Zach and Mitchell. My name's Justin. I'm a small farmer from Middle Tennessee. And I want to say I uh, love y'all's guys' shows and, and YouTube channels. Um I just want to say I'm very encouraged as a as a young farmer uh your your shows are, are very encouraging to me cuz I'm trying to figure out you know where is my spot in the world of agriculture and um y'all are are very inspiring between y'all and the guests that you have on uh they're very inspiring to me but in the midst of a you know this pandemic mess that we're in you know we've seen the the weaknesses that are in our our food supply chains whether it be in meats or whether it be in in crops and the issues that we see getting it from the farm to the table. And we understand that it takes a lot between the farm and the table. And so I'm very excited. I'm very encouraged by this um, because I see a spot for the small producer. You know, a lot of the guys that are around here, uh, including us, are guys that have, you know, a couple acres of row crops, uh, you know, anywhere from five to 50 or 100 head of cattle. Um, And I I see a spot for those producers uh, to be able to, to go quicker more quickly to the to the table as far as that shortening up that supply chain because now the consumer has seen you know issues that they have getting their food and I believe that they have a keen interest in uh, seeing where it comes from and now they see a need to to be more direct because maybe they they don't trust that that food system as much so uh, as, a, as a small producer I'm very encouraged through all of this you know even though it's not much to be Excited about, or it's a lot that could be worried about. But I uh, just wanted y'all's y'all's thoughts on, you know, the the whole meat packing, you know, industry and how it's very hands-on and subject to to human labor and, and sickness. Definitely, um, what do y'all think? Do y'all think that's something that that is long-term as far as people going straight from farm to table through a you know a small meat packing facility, or or do you think this will kind of settle down with uh, with how this virus? settles out thank y'all huge fan of your show take care i
1: I would agree since covid since this whole thing started happening and the the supplies were tightening up with the packing plants in what was that april may um i think i said it at the time there's going to be opportunities for people to get creative here and and we actually had somebody on our on our other podcast we do here that was is actually in the process of building his own facility to do his own butchering and I just, I think, you know, I think we'll certainly gravitate back as the virus sort of slows down. We're going to gravitate back to the system that we have because it's a good system, but I think there will be a lot of people who take advantage of the, the weak spots that we saw there and, and probably it'll play into their favor in a way where they can go more direct to consumer because I think it did wake a lot of people up to, uh, honestly, the weaknesses of that chain that works really well, you know, when, it, when it's working well but you throw a wrench in there and things fell apart pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, Zach, I totally agree. And Justin, thanks for calling in on this. I definitely think this is going to be an ongoing issue for a while. Um, My hot take on it, you know, is I totally agree with Zach that there's a ton of opportunity to be able to better connect with that consumer. Uh, But there's a lot of red tape around this. I think there's a lot of policy that needs to be reevaluated here um, in order to allow for more of those kind of local processing facilities, like, like Zach's buddy is getting going, got to be able to have uh, the ability to actually get that meat harvested and actually get it to the consumer. And there's a lot of regulation around what you can and can't do as far as selling directly to those consumers. Like I can't just go and get a hog processed and sell only the pork chops. I have to sell that hog to a family by the quarter half or whole hog. And they are technically the one getting it processed. The issue in my area, I just heard here the other day that our local processing facilities are booked 18 to 24 months out. So I can't even go and purchase a hog from a local producer right now and go get it go get it processed because they are booked to the max because of so many of these people that are attempting to take advantage of being able to better connect with the consumer and go directly from that farmer to that family um, because we can all become money ahead in doing so but the processing and uh, the policy side of things is definitely something that needs to be further addressed
1: that's it for field work today our show is produced by annie baxter with lots of great help from Lori stern amy mayer mike langseth and Corey suzuki
0: Christian Schmidt runs our social media. LA Lyons does our marketing. And Lauren Humpert is our project coordinator.
1: Be sure to check us out on social media. We are at Fieldwork Talk on all the usual channels. And we'd love it if you wrote us a review to help other people find us.
0: Yeah. And don't forget that we love hearing from you. So definitely give us a call with your comments or questions. Call us up. Leave us a voicemail. 651-228-4810. That's 651-228-4810.
1: Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. And until then, don't soil yourself.